nature is our protection and we need to put back nature where it's been destroyed or protect what's still there to not only have benefits for biodiversity, but actually to protect humans and our communities from the worst impacts of climate change. So welcome everyone to 100 Climate Conversations. Thank you so much for joining us. Today is number 11 of 100 Conversations happening every Friday. And this series presents 100 visionary Australians that are taking positive action to respond to the most critical issue of our time, which is climate change. We are broadcasting today in the boiler hall of the Powerhouse Museum. Before it was home to the museum, it was the Ultimo power station. It was built in 1899 and it supplied coal-powered electricity to Sydney's tram system into the 1960s. In the context of this architectural artefact, we're now shifting our focus towards the innovations of the net zero revolution. Here at Umarumaji, Ray Johnston Uinati, Wiradjuri Yinabaladu. Hello friends, my name is Ray Johnston. I'm a Wiradjuri woman. I was born and raised on Darug and Gundagata country where I have responsibilities to community and country. And it is an honour to be here today with you on the unceded land of the Gadigal. And I wish to pay my deepest respects to their elders past and present. And I extend that respect to any of my First Nations brothers and sisters, aunties and uncles that may be here with us today. Now. As we begin today's conversation, it is important to remember that the world's first scientists, technologists, engineers, mathematicians are the sovereign First Nations peoples of this very continent from the world's oldest continuing cultures, despite all attempts to erase them. Now with me today is Leslie Hughes, who is an ecologist, distinguished professor of biology at Macquarie University and founding climate counsellor at the Climate Council. And we are so thrilled to have her join us today. Welcome, Leslie. Now you've been researching climate change since the 1990s. You began your scientific career though as a zoologist. Mm -hmm. What made you turn your focus to the impact of climate change on ecosystems and species? Well, believe it or not, it was because I was bored with ants. <laughs> I did my PhD on ants, <laughs> and ants are wonderful creatures. I have nothing against them at all, um, though I get annoyed with them in my kitchen like everybody else. But I spent four years following ants around the bush. And once I got my PhD, I was thinking, well, I don't want to do that for the rest of my life. And I was <laughs> casting around for something else to work on. I wanted to write um, an application for a postdoc to actually get some money to live on. And my then PhD supervisor actually said to me, well, you know, climate change, you know, might be a thing. Um, why don't you maybe do something about that? So back in 1990, of course, climate change was just a sort of future intellectual academic issue. Yeah. You know, it wasn't the sort of social and political and economic issue that it is today. But I started to read about it. I thought, yeah, I might have a bit more of a chance getting a job um, working on something like this than following ants around for the rest <laughs> of my life. Um, so I got into it. And... Once you get into climate change, anything, be it research or advocacy or anything else, 
Um, it is like being in the Hotel California. You know, you can try and check out, but you cannot. No. What, what is it that keeps you there? Well, it becomes, over time, absolutely the moral imperative of something to work on. I absolutely believe that climate change is the biggest existential threat facing all of us on the planet, species as well as humans. Um, and in lots of ways, I've found it a real privilege to be able to make a living and spend my career working on what is the greatest problem of our time. I mean, yeah. what, what better thing to do than that? <laughs> Anything else would feel to me like a waste. You've said before that there was no real light bulb moment for you mm -hmm. when it came to the importance of climate action. You just gradually came to see the importance of keeping up mm -hmm. with the science. So in this early part of your career, how much awareness of climate change was there among the general public and, and even among the scientific community as well? Well, look, I think most people had heard of it but that was about as far as it went. I think most people didn't realise it was ever going to affect their lives. And even in the scientific community, you know, when I started, I could actually physically read everything on climate change that was being published, because it was maybe a couple of hundred papers a year, if that. I would have no hope of doing that now. There's probably a couple of hundred papers published every day. Now. Yeah. So back then it was really, as I said, sort of an intellectual exercise. Um, there were a few people around like James Hansen in the US who had um, talked to the US Senate about the impacts, the potential impacts of climate change and about the fact that he said, we've got to stop waffling and realise that it's happening now and we've got to do something about it. But he was really almost a lone voice in that, in that space. And it was really just a, a gradual thing over time that people started to get to know more. And once the impacts of climate change be moved from being future impacts to things that we could observe right now, of course, that's when most other people kind of woke up to it. So throughout these first conversations that we've had as part of 100 Climate Conversations, the IPCC, mm -hmm. the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and the reports that they generate have been mentioned in almost every single one. Mm -hmm. It's an extremely significant global initiative when it comes to taking action on climate, and you were actually a lead author in the fourth and fifth IPCC assessment reports. What's it like to be part of that? It's an enormous privilege. It's very hard work, but it's a wonderful thing to feel like even a very tiny cog, and each, each lead author, there are many hundreds, um, you know, so you know you're only a little part of that. But actually working with another, with a big group of people towards a common goal and to feel part of something really big and really important internationally is is fantastic you know so it's a, it's an absolute buzz to be part of it. Yeah, I can imagine. So how do you find working collaboratively with scientists across the globe? Do they have you know, vastly different perspectives to us here? Look mostly not. I mean I think everybody all the authors on an IPCC report have a shared agenda and that's the exciting thing you know you get people from from all sorts of countries it is truly international all sorts of different backgrounds and expertise uh, but every, everybody cares about the same thing, which is basically translating and synthesising what we know into what we've got to do. Um, and being part of that huge enterprise is 
is an amazing thing. And the thing about the IPCC reports is that they are the most rigorously put together and scrutinised documents in history. They go through multiple drafts, they synthesise hundreds of thousands of pieces of work, um, there are thousands of comments on those drafts and every single one of those comments has to be responded to in writing publicly. Oh, wow. You know, there's, there's no other enterprise like it, no other documents that are so scrutinised and so carefully put together. Tell me about your role in mm -hmm. bringing these reports together. What, what are you specifically doing? I was a lead author on the Australasian chapter in both of those reports in what's called Working Group 2. So um, the assessments come out about every seven years and there are three parts. So Working Group 1 um, is the physical science. Working Group 2 is the impacts and adaptation and vulnerability. Working Group 3 is all about the solutions. So um, the best way to distinguish them is that Working Group 1 is the what, Working Group 2 is the so what, and Working ah. Group 3 is the what now. So I was in the so what section <laughs> and the Australian part of the so what section. So I had um, carriage, there's usually eight, eight lead authors uh, plus a lot of contributing authors, but I had basic carriage of the biodiversity sections, but also because there's only eight of us and there's a lot more topics than that, you also have to sort of step outside your comfort zone a bit and, and take carriage of other things. So, yeah. so I generally looked after the health sections as well, as well as some of the adaptation section, but really all of the authors contribute to the whole chapter. And how long does it take to bring together? So the reports come out about every seven years. Yeah. They're worked on for about three to four years. And, you know, um, when I first went to my first meeting for the, the fourth assessment, one of the other authors and I had not done it before. And so we were chatting one night and, and this guy said to me, he said, you know, we've only got 25 pages because that was our word limit. And that's the most <laughs> frustrating thing about the IPCC reports is you've got to condense an awful lot into a short space. He said, you know, we've only got 24 pages. There's eight of us. That's... Uh, 25 pages, that's, that's only three and a bit pages each. How long can that possibly take to write? <laughs> and the answer to that is about three years. Yeah. So, <laughs> right. so, so that's what I mean. It, it goes through, you, you start off with a chapter that's about 100 pages long yeah. and then you've got to whittle it down and whittle it down and whittle it down until absolutely every word counts. Now, in 2007, the Nobel Peace Prize was jointly awarded to former USA Vice President Al Gore mm -hmm. and the IPCC for yeah. contributions to furthering action on climate change. You were part of the IPCC at the time uh, that the award was handed out. What was the significance of the IPCC being acknowledged like this? How did it feel? I was thrilled, actually, because, you know, I, I have a huge admiration, as you can probably tell, mm. for the institution and for the people that run it. Um, so I thought the recognition from the Nobel Committee, it was unexpected. I had no idea. I didn't, don't think any of us had any idea that the IPCC had even been nominated. Um, but I thought, look, any attention on climate change is good attention. So I thought, well, this is a great acknowledgement, both of Al Gore's work and of the IPCC's work, um, that this is a huge, a huge issue, and it is actually a peace issue. So it's a security issue. So at the time, a lot of people said, well, why have a whole bunch of climate change people got the peace prize? But when you think about the role of extreme climate events in global security, 
it's very clear that climate change is a security issue. So it is a war and peace issue. So yeah. I, I felt it was entirely appropriate. But I, I was really thrilled vicariously <laughs> at the recognition that the institution had got. You are currently a councillor on the Climate Council mm -hmm. and the board director. And prior to this, you were a climate commissioner with mm -hmm. the Federal Climate Commission, mm -hmm. which provided evidence-based information about climate change in Australia. And that was established in 2011 by the Gillard Labor government. Sadly, that commission was short-lived and it was abolished by the Abbott Liberal government in 2013. To start, what was the significance of having a Federal Climate Commission in the first place? Well, when the Gillard government got into power, they had a hung parliament. Um, you know, it's interesting to think about that in the, in the face of the, the election that, that's coming up. So the hung parliament meant that the, the, power, the balance of power was held by um, some Greens members as well as some independents. And Julie Gillard did, I think, a great thing in that she got everybody together. She was an, a great consensus builder. And every month there was this committee called the multi-party committee um, that consisted of some Labor people from the government, um, those independents and a couple of Greens, with, some, with an economist, Roscano, and with my fellow climate councillor, Will Stefan, as a scientist. And they worked on this thing called the clean energy package, which brought in the carbon price. So that was right. hugely important. But one of the other things they did was they figured that in order to get broad acceptance of the carbon price and the need for action, um, there needed to be better communication to the Australian people. So they formed this thing called the Climate Commission. And as you said, our, our role was to get out there, explain the climate science to the Australian public, explain the, the implications of a carbon price to the Australian public, because this was sort of new. Um, and so that's what we did. So there were six of us and I was thrilled to be invited to be one of those commissioners. And, and for me, it was quite a life-changing experience. We went to lots of different regional cities around towns and cities around Australia, virtually every capital city. And what we would do, we would come up on a stage like this, but often in a big town hall, literally a town hall or an RSL club or a, a movie theatre, all, mm. all, all sorts of venues all around the place. And we would have a facilitator, which was often a local journalist. And we would sit there and we took questions from the audience. So it was this like massive Q&A for about an hour and a half to two hours. So it was, it was hard going. <laughs> it was pretty tense, especially the first couple when we hardly even knew each other, let alone what was yeah. going to happen. But we took questions from the audience and tried to answer them as best we could. And so it, it really taught me how important good communication is. It really gave us all exposure to what everyday average people in the street really thought about this, what they knew, importantly, what they didn't know, yeah. what they needed to know, what they wanted to know. And so there were just, we just had thousands and thousands of conversations over that two and a half years. And I, I still think it was one of the, the biggest privileges I've ever had. Now, almost immediately after coming into power, the newly elected Abbott Liberal government abolished the Climate Commission in September 2013. But you and your fellow commissioners didn't stay down for long because a week after the independent, not-for-profit Climate Council was announced by the former Commissioner Tim Flannery and Amanda McKenzie, who's now the CEO. Can you take us back to that time? You know, what was the public reaction to the abolishment of the Climate Commission? 
Well, the public was hugely surprised. Now, we mm. weren't surprised because we'd got the message from the then opposition that if they came into power, and it looked like they would, they would abolish us. So, so we had the heads up from them. So we had a bit of time to sort of talk about it. And I'll never forget this meeting in, a, in this hotel in Melbourne where we were doing some um, town halls. Tim took us all into a, into a room at this hotel and said, look, I want to talk to you about something. You know, it's very likely that in the next, you know, come the election, we'll get canned. If we can get the money together, would you be willing to keep going? And we all said, of course we would. You yeah. know, we knew we were far from finished in the job. So Amanda started to put together a business plan and we registered the name Climate Council and that was actually all ready to go before the election um, in the event that, that the Abbott government got in and did abolish it. So it was funny though, because even though we were expecting it, when it finally did happen, it was it still felt like a punch in the guts. Yeah. You know, it really, really did. I, I sort of couldn't quite believe it would happen until it did. But anyway, it did. But having the plan up our sleeves was a good thing. So it meant that, as you say, you know, within, I think it was, well, the Abbott, Abbott government, it was their first act. So we were abolished on the second day of the Abbott government, which was wow. the first actual thing the government did. Did they give a reason at the time? Well, they sort of said, well, look, we've got our own scientists, you know, we don't need to spend all this money on this group to, to do this stuff. But, but really, they were just very... Um, anti any form of talk about climate change. Um, so what it meant, that sort of suddenness, what it meant was that people that did care about climate change and or people that um, hadn't voted for the Abbott government were furious. Yeah. They were frustrated, they were angry, they were livid. And we were able to channel that frustration and anger into our support because we gave them an outlet for yeah. it when people felt so hopeless about what had happened. And we said, well, one thing you can do, you can give us some money and we will keep going. And so they did. So Tim went on um, a dateline, it was, on the ABC one night and said, we're starting this new organisation. It's going to be absolutely independent and publicly funded. Um, from midnight tonight, our website will be open to receive donations. And then we all sat back and sort of held our <laughs> breath because it, maybe we would have got 10 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been a disaster. But um, we got a lot more than 10 bucks. So at about one minute past midnight, the first donation, which was about 15 or $20 from some guy in New South Wales came in. And by that afternoon, we'd raised over $200,000. Oh, wow. At one point, there was 30,000 coming in every half hour. It just took off like a snowball. Long story short, um, after a week, we'd raised $1.2 million. Wow. And then, of course, we all sat around and there were five of us at this point, so five of the original six climate commissioners um, were in the room. And we thought, oh my God, what now? Yeah. You know, all of these Australians have given us their money. We felt the pressure of expectation on us because we'd got their money now, but of course, because it only just started, we had nothing to give them, we had no product. Anyway, I, I said to them, look, it was shaping up to be uh, a really hot summer, and I said, look, I'd like to write a report about the um, connection between bushfires and climate change, so I'll get cracking on that. 
So there I was actually starting to write it. And we, of course, we had no research team. I had one volunteer who was helping me. And I'm sitting at my dining room table, sort of frantically reading papers about bushfires. And then the bushfires in the Blue Mountains started, um, uh, which were de absolutely devastating. Yeah. So we were already starting to get media attention, you know, is there a link to climate change? And, and I'd be saying, look, I'm just writing this report. Can you hang on for a couple of months and I'll, I'll be able to tell you? But of course, the media doesn't work like that. No. So, so we Sorry. actually got together with, and literally we, we put some dot points on a whiteboard, created a press release, and that was our, yeah. our sort of first major sort of science press release, which got uh, lots of attention because the media were just really after um, good scientific commentary about climate change and bushfires because these bushfires were, were not like nothing really that the Blue Mountains had ever seen. It's almost a decade after the Climate Council was founded, yeah. but that's gone quick. Uh, tell us about the Council, how it works to be part of the solution on mm -hmm. taking action on climate change. You know, yeah. Yeah, as an independent body, obviously that first round of funding came directly from the public, but are you able to get more done compared to being a federally funded climate yeah. commission? You know, have your goals changed? since you've our goal, moved into this Look, format. our ultimate goal hasn't changed, mm. which is to work to inform the Australian public and beyond about the science, um, because it, you need an informed public to make the right decisions, yeah. be they in their businesses or who they vote for or whatever. So that fundamental goal is still our goal. But of course, as we've grown, what we've been able to do has expanded enormously. So uh, I should say we've comprehensively outlasted the Abbott Prime Ministership, um, <laughs> which we're very proud of. Um, so we now have, I lose track because it's increasing all the time. We, we now have, I think, over 50 staff, you know, wow. starting from a staff of one to, to over 50. I think we've got 14 or 15 councillors now. We've always had a terrific board. Um, and we've expanded, we, we, we've done, we've kept doing some of the same things like writing reports, making videos, um, we have huge social media content which is how a lot of people engage with us. Uh, we do a lot of media commentary on all sorts of climate related topics but we've also expanded into other areas. So um, we helped found ELCA, the Emergency Leaders for Climate Action, which is all the, the former fire chiefs talking about the, the links between climate and um, climate change and, and bushfires. Um, we, we started the Climate Media Centre, which helps train people up to, to in all sorts of walks of life to, to talk about climate change, because one of the things we know about climate change communication is that the messenger is as important as the message. Yeah. So training up firefighters to talk to firefighters about climate change and doctors and nurses to talk about the health impacts, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, the, the CMC has been really behind a lot of that. Um, and we've also started a group called the Cities Power Partnership, which is a support for local governments that are taking climate change action. And we've got over 150 local governments signed up in the Cities Power Partnership. So, so over time, as the, the money kept coming in, um, we've been able to expand the reach of our activities enormously. 
But one, you asked me before what was diff, what's different about working at the Climate Council versus the Climate Commission. Yeah. Um, and the difference evolved over time. So when we were on the Climate Commission, we were funded by the government, though never interfered with by the minister. So Greg Combe was our, our minister and he was extremely supportive, but never once told us what we could or couldn't say. Um, so we were kind of independent, even though there might not have been the perception in the public that we were independent because our secretariat was paid for by the government. Right. So we were very, very careful about any sort of political statements, etc. But once we became publicly funded, those shackles sort of gradually loosened. And so these days we, we remain a non-partisan organisation. We don't come out and say, vote for this candidate, vote for that candidate. Um, but we uh, no longer um, are prevented from talking about the details of policy from different parties. So if a party has a policy that we don't agree with, yeah. we will certainly say so. Now, as an ecologist, well, one of your interests is nature-based solutions mm -hmm. to climate change. Can you tell us broadly what a nature-based solution actually is? It's really the concept that a healthy environment, you know, and I like to talk about our environment as our life support system. We don't exist separately from our environment. It provides everything we need. Nature-based solutions is really the concept that a healthy environment is good for people as well as good for protecting us from the impacts of climate change. Yeah. So if I think about it, a sort of obvious example would be mangroves. So mangroves that go along the coast um, perform all sorts of functions. You know, they provide nursery grounds for fish, they provide food for things, they um, store a lot of carbon in their the sediment, uh, they filter water from the land, all sorts of things. But what they also do is they, they break up wave energy. So when there is a storm, um, they protect the land from the worst of the, that sort of energy. So we've lost a lot of mangroves around the world because they've been cleared for development or, or turned into firewood or whatever. And when, we, when that happens, uh, we get a lot more storm damage on those coasts. So by restoring mangroves, that's a, a perfect nature-based solution. It's actually a win-win. It's protecting us and our communities from an extreme climate event as well as being habitat and performing all of those other ecosystem services that we need. So that's just one example. So, but it's really the concept that nature is our protection mm. and we need to put back nature where it's been destroyed or protect what's still there um, to not only have benefits for biodiversity, but actually to protect humans and our communities from the worst impacts of climate change. How has the idea of conservation shifted over time because of human-driven impacts, mm -hmm. including climate change? What has changed? How has people's thinking changed over the time that you've been involved? Well, I have to say people's thinking is a bit slow on this. The root of the word conservation is conservare, which is Latin for staying the same. So we think of conservation as, as conserving in a place what was there, what we think was there for all time. Of course, as the world has changed over time, um, ecosystems have also changed. So yeah. 50 million years ago, Australia was covered in rainforest because we were in a different part of the globe and we had a different climate. So the, the notion that things have always been the same mm. is actually a false one on yeah. any time scale. 
But with climate change, of course, it's absolutely not the case that anything is staying the same. So approaching conservation as um, we have to turn the clock back to what it was like when I was five or what it was like in Australia when Captain Cook arrived, and that's the ideal, is actually not only a false notion, but it's actually a futile notion. So what I've been trying to do over a lot of my career is once you understand how rapidly the, the climate is changing and therefore our environment is changing because of that, you actually have to look forward rather than look back. And so my, um, my push has always been we need to um, certainly keep all the species that we've got and not lose them faster than we would normally uh, lose them. You know, species have always gone extinct, but much more slowly than they're going extinct now. We've got to try and keep them, but we don't necessarily uh, want to keep them in the same places where they've been for the last hundred or a thousand years, because the climate may be becoming so um, difficult for them in those places that they need to go somewhere else. So conservation, in my view, is now in some ways an outdated concept. We can, I still call myself an environmentalist, mm. but I would like to think that I'm looking forward rather than back and looking for new and innovative and creative ways to keep all the species doing what they need to do, but not necessarily in the same mixes of species in the same places where they've been for the last few hundred years. But that involves being much more active and more interventionist in the nat natural environment. Yeah. And a lot of conservationists feel very, very uncomfortable about that. It's not the way a lot of conservationists think. Um, but I'm, I've been talking for 20 years about the need to translocate species to other places, for example, to pick species up and move them somewhere else if the place that they're in now is going to be um, a place that they can't survive in. Yeah. in decades hence. Now, of course, it's expensive to do that. There are risks involved. Uh, but for many species, the risks of leaving them where they are are simply too great. It's sad, the idea of relocating animals from places that they've lived since they've existed to entirely well, different yes, environments. Well, yes, though, it is, but it's practical. Yeah. You know, so Australia has a terrible record for extinction. Uh, we've lost more mammals in Australia than any other continent um, in the world. We also have the dubious record of actually having the first mammal to go extinct because of climate change. Yeah. So a few years ago, there was a little rodent called uh, the Bramble Key Malomies, lived on the only one place in the entire planet, which is this tiny little sandy island up in the Torres Strait. Um, Everybody knew it was in trouble, it was listed as endangered, there was a recovery plan written for it, which was, to be honest, pretty useless, and it wasn't enacted anyway. Um, and the last one was seen in 2009, and when people went back to that island, they realised that the entire island had been inundated several times from storms, because sea levels rising in the yeah. Torres Strait about twice the global average. So basically the last of the Malomis simply drowned. Now, if we'd moved a few of those individuals, even just to another island that was a bit higher above sea level, we would have avoided that. It was an entirely avoidable extinction. But despite knowing that species was in absolute dire straits, we didn't do anything and we lost it. And that should be a lesson that we must never ha let that happen again. 
Now, you're also a part of the Wentworth Group mm -hmm. of Concerned Scientists. It's an independent group of scientists and professionals working to secure the long-term health of Australia's land, water and biodiversity. You know, one of the research projects that you recently completed as a group with the Wentworth Group, it, it looked at the costs and benefits of restoring Australia's terrestrial ecosystems. Yeah. What would it take to achieve this? Less, than a, less than a submarine. <laughs> <laughs> Tell Let me, me more. Explain Tell that. me more. <laughs> okay, so, so we did an analysis of the, the terrestrial environment in Australia. Yeah. Um, we looked at um, all sorts of different types of ecosystems and looked at how much they'd become degraded and how much we would need to take to bring those ecosystems back. Okay. And we looked at where we could do that. And we focused on land that was already degraded, you know, to being overstocked or for some other reason. And we figured out how much land we would need to bring those, all of those ecosystems back to about 30% of what they were. Still only 30%, but a lot of those ecosystems are at 1% or, or less than what they might have been 200 right. years ago. And we, then we looked at how much it would cost to do that, either by replanting or um, buying back land, that sort of thing. And we calculated that overall it would cost about $2 billion a year for the next 30 years to get to that 30% of virtually all of Australia's terrestrial ecosystems. And $2 billion does sound like quite a bit of money, but it's only 0.1% of Australia's GDP. So when you look at it like that, it's a tiny, tiny amount of money, really. And in doing that, there's all sorts of co-benefits, not just for biodiversity, but the sequestration of carbon. We could sequester by doing that about a billion tonnes of carbon. And if you put even a fairly conservative price on that carbon, um, the, the carbon offset revenue would easily pay for the whole project. And it's a lot less than our current submarine project. So I do like to compare it to the submarine project. <laughs> What's more important? <laughs> if, that, if that project did go ahead, what kind of impacts would it have? Well, it, it would be, it'd turn around things. You know, I think as conservationists, environmentalists, we're really used to decline. You sort of get into this frame of mind where you know that everything's declining and it's a matter of just trying to slow it down. So you, you do get into a very kind of negative, yeah. pessimistic fatalistic frame of mind. So I think as much as anything, disregarding the obvious biodiversity benefits, it would actually give people hope that we can actually turn around environmental degradation and end up with something much better than before. So, you know, psychologically, we could get out of this feeling that we're just seeing the world collapse and decline everywhere and it's just a matter of trying to slow it down to our inevitable demise. By actually turning things around and bringing things back. No, I completely agree. <laughs> now, what kind of barriers stand in the way, obviously, other than having a spare $2 billion laying around, yeah, yeah. To, to be able to actually do something like this? There seems like there's so many different benefits for the environment, for the economy, yeah. for, for everything. Why isn't it happening? Why aren't we prioritising a project like this? Look, if I knew the answer to that question, <laughs> we'd be a lot better off. Uh, partly it's the psychology, I think, of, of not thinking we can do it. Mm. Um, so not having that 
drive to think, yes, we can. Um, partly it's that Australia has a very complex uh, interrelated set of three, three levels of government. Um, and so sometimes what you do in one place, you're undoing in another place. Partly it's money, partly it's organisation. But we have been, since that, that work was published, we have been having um, some really uh, fruitful discussions with some government departments, with nice. some ministers, um, certainly with some farming groups. Um, and with, with many individuals and businesses. So I think the first, you know, we've done the first thing, which is to say it could be done. This is what it would take. This is how much it would cost. Of course, the next thing is to work out how we're going to do it. And yeah. that's, that's harder, but at least showing people that it could be done is a first step. If this was a town hall meeting, like back in the day, and I was an audience member standing up and saying, but what can I do? What can I do as an individual? How do I help? What would you tell me today, knowing everything you know? Well, first I'll say that nobody can do everything and everybody can do something. And a lot of the things that you can do cost no money. So number one, you've got to vote. If you're over 18, you've got to vote. Or even if you're under 18, your parents have a vote. So try and influence them. So number one, um, let's get political leaders that care about whose views align with the Australian community's views on climate. Because uh, by far the majority of people in Australia um, are concerned about climate and want something more happening. So we need leaders that align with those views. So number one is a vote. Um, number two, uh, you can move your money. You know, if you've got money, if you've got a superannuation policy, if you've got an insurance policy, um, there are uh, all sorts of banks and uh, companies that are not investing in fossil fuels. So um, find out who they are and you can move your money and that doesn't cost you anything either. You can think about your diet, things like that. You know, um, there was a fantastic review in Science a few years ago where they analysed the carbon footprint of hundreds of the most common food items eaten in the world. And they said the most important thing that anybody can do is reduce their meat and dairy intake. Now, I'm not a vegetarian. I'm, I'm nearly a vegetarian. I, I do occasionally still eat meat and dairy, uh, but I eat far less than I used to. So thinking about your diet, thinking about where your food comes from. If you can afford it, obviously, um, producing your own energy on your roof is a fantastic thing to do. Um, electric vehicles are becoming more and more available and will hopefully get cheaper. And finally, the, I think the most important thing that anybody can do if they're concerned is um, stop feeling hopeless and helpless and join a group of like-minded people mm. that feel like you do. And there are now so many groups out there for virtually everybody. You know, uh, there are surfers for climate action. There are <laughs> AFL players for climate action. There are parents for climate action. There are local groups. You can find your people and collective action is far more um, influential than individual action. So find your people and work together. And that makes you feel better too. Thank you so much for chatting with us today, Leslie. It's been fantastic hearing from you. Thanks, Ray.
To follow this program online, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, visit the 100 Climate Conversations exhibition, or join us for a live recording. And you can also go to the 100 Climate Conversations website, which is at 100climateconversations.com. This is a significant new project for the museum and records of these conversations will form a new climate change archive preserved for future generations in the powerhouse collection of over 500,000 objects that tell the stories of our time.